Welcome to Deep Roots, a project of Cortez Community Radio. Deep Roots is an examination of contemporary environmental issues and traditional knowledge and culture. Fairy tales show wolf as a threat we should fear. Others think of wolf as a romantic symbol of the wild. People of the Salish Sea have seen wolf as a brother and neighbor for thousands of years. Natalia Auger Nabida gathered insight, thoughts, and guidance from the Salish Wolf Clan, biologists, Zawa Danuk of Kingcomb Inlet Wolf Dancers, and Green Corridor activists. Here's her voice scape. Who speaks for Brother Wolf? First Nations on the Salish Sea have always believed that wolves have as much right to the place in their world as human beings, and that they respect and treat the wolves as equals. Here's Ken Hanus of the Wolf Clan sharing a story of Salish Chief Dan George. I wanted to give something of my past to my grandson, so I took him into the woods to a quiet spot. Seated at my feet, he listened as I told him of the powers that were given to each creature. He moved not a muscle as I explained how the woods had always provided us with food, homes, comfort, and religion. He was awed when I related to him how the wolf became our guardian, and when I told him that I would sing the sacred wolf song over him. He was overjoyed. In my song, I appealed to the wolf to come preside over us while I would perform the wolf ceremony so that the bondage between my grandson and the wolf would be lifelong. I sang. In my voice was the hope that clings to every heartbeat I sang. In my words were the powers I inherited from my forefathers I sang. In my cupped hands lay a spruce seed, the link to creation I sang. In my eyes sparkled love I sang. And the song floated on the sun's rays from tree to tree. When I had ended, it was as if the whole world listened with us to hear the wolf's reply. We waited a long time, but none came. Again I sang, humbly, but as invitingly as I could, until my throat ached and my voice gave out. All of a sudden, I realized why no wolves had heard my sacred song. There were none left. My heart filled with tears. I could no longer give my grandson faith in the past, our past. At last, I could whisper to him, it is finished. Renee Owens is a biologist, professor, and activist for conservation. She studies the effects of human impact on wolf habitat. Probably the biggest thing that impacts on this, that people relate to is that they simply are losing um, land. You know, we, we um, degrade and we bulldoze their land, but fragmentation is a big part of it, not just all out removing land, but as we fragment it with development and urban sprawl and roads, we move into rural areas. So that brings us into their world and so ensues all kinds of 
our problems that we bring with us, whether it's, um, you know, the problems of how we interact with them and how we deal with that, which is numbers well when it comes to wolves. That's a big story right there. And um, not to mention other things you won't even get into, like pollutants and um, climate change and how that affects them. I mean, um, how we deal with their prey species. Pretty much everything we do impacts top predators in the ecosystem. Wolf behavior and wolf has certainly not changed um, since they've been around us, and we've been around each other for thousands of years. Um, and one of the reasons I say that is because whenever you have a predator, like I studied, you know, I studied, like I said, crocodiles and jaguars and anacondas, and you get a lot of you get a lot of um, fear mongering. You get a lot of myth spinning. Owen says assumptions about wolves persist. And um, and one of those things you hear are as, as more people are uneducated and yet are confronted with these animals, let's say as we move more into rural areas, we, we might see them more because we are in their territory now. There are more of us. There's 7 billion of us. Um, and though there are fewer of them, we tend to make these assumptions like, oh, I see more, therefore their populations are exploding. If I've heard that once, I've heard it a million times. That's an erroneous assumption. If we see them more, we make the um, incorrect assumption, oh, well, they're not afraid of us anymore. That's not correct either. Try to imagine places where they can move about and live their lives freely without crossing our paths, without crossing a road, without going across a rural, it's, it's a, a, a residence of humans. It's a lot harder for them to do. And these are animals that cover hundreds and hundreds of acres for their territory. Um, so then we say, well, then they're losing their fear of humans. They're losing, you know, we make all these mistaken assumptions. Uh, wolves still fear us. Wolves do not attack people. History shows that to be true. They don't attack people. So that can, I guess you could say they respect us. We're dangerous. We've slaughtered them for centuries, and their instinct and evolution has taught them we're something to be avoided. Um, but they're also driven by equally important instincts like food, which they need for survival. Um, so, so again, with this lack of education on wolves and compounded by misinformation, there's a lot of things out there said about wolves that just, just aren't accurate. Um, and not only are they inaccurate, they, they, again, they drive policy, and that's a big problem. Owen says family is everything to wolves. Do we know that um, the pack is everything to the wolf? If we manage them by, say, killing the alpha wolves, we essentially have doomed the whole pack. Do we know, do people know that wolves actually celebrate together? They mourn together. Some are leaders. Um, some are bold, but most of them are pretty shy. Um, I like to educate people that individual wolves all contribute. I mean, it's a real social group. There are bonded groups like human babies, young wolves, have prolonged dependency on their parents and their siblings and their elders. 
they really rely on the elders of the pack, like we do in our communities, at least I hope we do, we rely on our elders um, to teach us things. They spend at least a quarter of their lives, a third of their lives, being taught skills and lessons by their elders. Um, the rearing of young is a shared responsibility, not just by the parents. There's cooperative hunting and feeding, territory protection, defense. So in a lot of ways, we can relate to the social roles of wolves. Um, so in, in educating people about that and connecting them to a day in the life of the wolf, we can see them more as just some distant, you know, we can talk about things like keystone predator, and that's really important because ecosystems rely on wolves to be healthy ecosystems in many places. Um, places like Yellowstone have shown us that lesson. But sometimes those lessons are a little bit, um, uh, they're not, they don't reach the heart of people. So I like to tell them about the day in the life of the wolves to show that this is real and they feel and they have love and they mourn their loss of others in the pack and these things that we as humans do relate to because we like other animals. We, we aren't just scientific. We are morally and um, emotionally motivated. And, and so that speaks to the fact that, like, trophy hunting, trapping, aerial gunning, using poisons, bounties, are not um, just having terrible consequences on wolf survival. They're cruel, and they don't really generate the best that we can do as far as management goes. Owens insists that education is key to coexisting with wolves. So that's one of the things I try to do. And, um, and then I try to help people find ways where if they seriously are scared, if they truly have succumbed to the fear-mongering, we show them what has worked. We show them there are solutions that aren't, that aren't rocket science, that mostly wolves are not a threat to people whatsoever. They don't attack people. Um, there's even people like a French scientist, Dr. Chaperon, who's written a lot about how in Europe there are a lot higher ratio of wolves to people than in Canada and North America, but they do a lot better coexistence. Um, they've described something called an applied community ecology theory that shows how we can conserve predators in a human-dominated landscape. We know how to do this. It's not like we haven't figured it out, but we have to be able to have these conversations. Sabina Mintz. I am the uh, coordinator of what is called the Cortez Community Wolf Project. The issue came up in 2009 on Cortez Island. We have always had wolves, and we're one of the few islands in the Salish Sea that um, still today has a, a very strong wolf pack. Quadra Island, also a wolf pack. Cortez, a wolf pack. But many of the southern islands, like Salt Spring Island, for example, that used to have very strong wolf pack or packs in the past, have lost those simply because of the development and the number of people living in those places and the lack of wild, large enough landscapes to support the wolves. Mentz says that there are basic rules for peaceful coexistence. 
um, we produced a, what's called a five-point primer, learning to live with wolves on Cortez Island. And the most important thing is that we need to learn to keep our wolves wild. And there's some very simple, five simple practices that we need to do in order to do that. And if we do it together as a community and consistently, then we believe that we can live um, together with wolves and keep that conflict very low. So very simple, doable, basic primer of do not feed wolves, do not feed their prey, such as deer or raccoons. Keep yourself safe. Know how to haze wolves away from your home areas. Keep your pets safe and practice good animal husbandry. And again, as, uh, as a community, if we work together, we work consistently to do those things, we can definitely reduce conflict with wolves and live in harmony with them. First of all, making sure we understand that they are members of this island community just as we are and that they have, you know, every right to live and um, bear young and hunt and travel through this landscape just as we do. And so that's number one, is understanding that we need to show that level of respect and honor um, to these individuals in our community. And then when we go to the primer that we've created, for example, is not feeding them, not feeding their prey species, telling them when we don't want them in our backyards. These are the ways that we show respect and, and these are the ways we reconnect with wolves. These are the ways we ensure that wolves will always be here on Cortez Island with us in the future. And I think those, that that's just the greatest way of showing respect and learning to live together with them and ensuring they're always here on the island, is that um, we treat them respectfully. The Slyman First Nation sees wolf as representing loyalty, strong family ties, good communication, education, understanding, and intelligence. If direction and purpose are lacking in life, when clarity and persistence are needed, the steadfast determination of the wolf can overcome fear, indecision, and confusion. Healers often take the form of the wolf in their ritual work. Wolves are fierce, loyal, independent, and well able to offer support on the most challenging healing journey. One of the most interesting and beautiful ways Northwest Coast First Nations show their feelings to towards Brother Wolf is through their traditional wolf dances. Wolves are the ancestors of the Zawadi Nook of Kingcom Inlet. Wolves survived the Great Flood by climbing to the top of a large mountain named Having Phosphorescence. Wolf howling originated when the Zawadinuk called out to the world to see if any other people had survived along with them. The Guskimuk answered their call, and after that the wolves changed into men and became their ancestors. Here's one version of the story of how the wolf dance came to be used among the Kwakwakiwakwa. At first, it was only at Kinkum Inlet. Now many families have the right to perform this dance. At the beginning of the world, a bird flew down from the sky and sat on the beach. The bird took off his mask and became a man. His name was Nemugwis, and he became the founder of an important family. One day, this chief and his son decided to make a boat so that they could hunt the seals and sea otters. So they shaped and hollowed out a cedar log. 
they could now travel to other islands and places that they were not able to visit before. The son of Namugwis decided to go on his first hunting trip alone. He had such skill and luck that he came back with a canoe full of game. His father held a feast to give him a new name, a hunter's name. Many chiefs and their families were invited to witness this event. The son went hunting at the mouth of Night Inlet. Here he met a young man with whom he traded canoes as a sign of trust. The stranger invited him to his house, and they decided that the young hunter should marry his new friend's daughter. As a wedding gift, the chief's son would be given the wolf dance, with its forty songs which he had previously been performed only with the Zawadenuk of King Kamlin Inlet. During the dance, dancers move forward, making their magical sound. They are warming up their voices to do their great howl those supernatural creatures, the wolves. They are truly making their wonderful howling. It is the great wolf dance, this supernatural gift. You are listening to Deep Roots on CKTZ Cortez Community Radio, an examination of environment and traditional knowledge and culture. Carla Voyager Dawson. For my own particular nation, which is the Muskimas Daudeno, I know that our relationship with the wolves were very close because uh, it was part of our origin story for Kinkamillet. So it's believed that our people actually are one and the same with the wolves. Carla's family moved depending on the season and their needs. The community that I come from in particular, there was four tribes and we were kind of nomadic between the territories of those four tribes, and we moved to different places, different part of the year. So, for instance, like in, in the late summer, early fall, we would go to King Camillet where we would wheat wummies, we would smoke fish. So it just really depended on what, what the needs were. I think a lot of it ties to origin stories, like where you were placed. You have a lot of similarities in terms of how we treat family, like we take care of of the youngest ones. We take care of the older ones. You know, we work as a community. We work together um, for the greater good. Carla describes how the wolf dance came to her people. I've actually even given that dance um, through, particularly through, not through my King Camillet roots, but uh, we have a, a tribe within the Kwakwakewak Nation, and they're called the Kwakwakewak. And so it's said that at the time of the Great Flood, there. Um, the wolves from Kinkum, our ancestors, were trying to find out, try to gauge who, who made it through the flood and who didn't. And so they started howling in all different directions uh, from our valley. And the only response that we received was from the wolves from Guacosicola. So that family, we're very close with that family. There was a time when that family had gotten, their population became so low because of, like, you know, modernization and just, you know, smallpox and all those kinds of things that our people were plagued with back then. Um, there was some concern whether or not that nation would survive. And so at that point in time, their chief met with the chief of my family and decided to, the, their chief gave over a box of dances and part of that was that wolf dance. There was a bunch of other dances as well. 
so we held that in trust for them for many decades and when their their nation and their family grew again we brought that box back so now we share those treasures but because of that relationship uh, my uncle Tommy he placed that dance on me probably about four years ago and anyway so that's just to honor that relationship that that we've had um, our family since time immemorial really Kyla has noted many changes for her people over recent times. I grew up hearing stories of how connected our communities were, and as a child, never really saw it as great as the stories that I heard. And I mean, it, it could be that those stories were dramatized and exaggerated and seemed much more than they were, but I'll never know that because I didn't live in that time. But I think... Over the course of my life, I think I've seen communities, my community specifically, drift apart, and they're not nearly as close as they once were. I think that we uh, underestimate the power that, as a collective, that wolves, humans, or even the Earth has. I mean, there's two, two, two roads to that. Obviously, you can learn about scientific stuff, you know, what, what, how things are impacting them, and you know, watching documentaries or whatever, getting involved in local societies, environmental societies, but there's also um, learning about First Nations culture and all that kind of stuff and how those things intertwine. John Davis is author of Big, Wild and Connected. His project's theme is large-scale connectivity to provide wildlife corridors. Wolves are wonderful example of a top carnivore or an apex predator, different terms are used, that does well, that tends to do best in, in big, wild, connected landscapes. And it's, it's partly because big, wild, land, connected landscapes are healthy and they have abundant prey. And of course, wolves need plenty of, uh, plenty of food to eat. They need plenty of deer or elk or moose or all of those to catch and eat. So they do well in wild, rich, abundant landscapes. But also wolves do best in big, wild, connected landscapes because unfortunately they tend to be persecuted. They tend to be shot or trapped by people. And one of the lessons we've learned at Wildlands Network through the years is that wildlife corridors are necessary, but they're not sufficient. We also have to have coexistence. You might say coexistence is as important as corridors. Davis says a healthy wolf population is essential. We need for people to accept and indeed to, to welcome these critical members of our biotic communities. Wolves play crucial roles in natural ecosystems. They prevent deer and moose and other ungulates, other browsers, from overeating the vegetation. If you remove the top carnivores from an ecosystem, as has happened in much of the eastern United States, they're very bad results for the forest. The, the, the hardwood seedlings and saplings are devoured quickly by the deer. Uh, songbirds suffer, salamanders suffer, wildflowers virtually disappear. Hardwood trees almost stop generating in many places. Unfortunately, most people don't realize this, but if you walk through the typical central Appalachian eastern deciduous forest, it looks beautiful. It looks actually quite open and almost glade-like in places, but it's supposed to have a rich layer of herbs and shrubs and so forth, and those have been eaten out and, and, and regenerating hardwoods. 
but those have been eaten out by deer because the deer have lost their predators. The pumas and wolves have been eradicated from the east. So the reason for these, these the, the, the need for these big wildlife corridors is not so much that pumas or wolves or other predators are completely dependent on wilderness. It's, it's at least as much that these, these predators, unfortunately, are persecuted by people. So we need, to, we need to protect those ecological connections, those wildways, those wildlife corridors, and we also need to encourage people to accept these animals and learn to coexist with them. Davis adds that First Nations had a more harmonious relationship with wolves. And I think First Nations had a much healthier attitude toward carnivores generally than modern-day peoples do. I remember long, long ago reading a beautiful book called Who Speaks for Wolf? I don't remember who the author was, but it was essentially a story about how a First Nations group, I don't remember what group it was either, always at, at their councils, they would always have somebody who would speak up and ask who speaks for wolf, because, as you say, the wolf was like a brother or a sister to these people, and they didn't want to make decisions without taking into account the needs of wolves. And I think that was the wolf was probably symbolic for not only its own species, its own kind, but many others as well. And I think, I think that it's very possible for people to have healthy attitudes toward wolves and other large carnivores, as many Native Americans did. Unfortunately, that's those healthy attitudes toward other members of the biotic community, especially the big toothy ones, mm. have largely been lost from our modern culture. Davis says looks can be deceiving. So I think many... Many modern peoples fear these big toothy animals needlessly because the, the, chance, the, the actual dangers from carnivores toward people are absolutely tiny. In fact, I think they make our lives safer by reducing the likelihood of roadkill and by reducing uh, or collisions with deer, I should say, uh, and by uh, reducing the likelihood of disease outbreaks like Lyme disease. Lyme disease is a problem especially in the eastern United States, partly because we've eliminated the predators that hold the smaller, or the, the, the browsers and the smaller animals in check. And then as for wolf attitudes toward people, I'm afraid, unfortunately, wolves generally fear people these days, and they have good reason to. Too often, when people encounter wolves, they shoot them, or they set traps to kill them. So I'm afraid that, unfortunately, this, the general attitude of carnivores toward people these days is one of fear. I don't think it had to be that way. Davis contends that modern society has something to learn from First Nations history. There's a co-evolutionary relationship between large dogs and human beings that, that helps explain how we became such effective hunters. I, there's anthropological literature on the co-evolution between wolves and early human hunters. Uh, there, it used to be a symbiotic relationship, but it no longer is, sadly. My last question is, what would you say to Wolf as your brother? It's a beautiful little quote um, written by a man by uh, the name of Ed Young in a little book of his, and it's actually the dedication of the book. And he wrote, To all the wolves of the world, he says thank you, to all the wolves of the world for lending your good name as a tangible symbol of our darkness. And again, it, it echoes what Barry Lopez said, how wolves are there and they bounce back or mirror back things that we need to deal with. What I would say to my brother Wolf is I would say to Wolf, thank you for the gifts. Thank you for the gift of being able 
by looking at you to look at myself and see those parts of myself that are dark, that need work, um, that I may not be comfortable with, and that I can move forward with. And I think that's at the root of our relationship with wolves, is they challenge us. And so I would say thank you to the wolves, thank you to Brother Wolf, for the gifts of introspection they give us as another species that also lives in a very similar familial way. Um, they give us this incredible gift of, of introspection. And for that, that's what I would say to my brother Wolf, is thank you for that gift. First I'd say, uh, I'm sorry, please forgive us. And then I would say, please help us understand uh, and know how to talk with our neighbors so that they don't fear you. There's no reason for people to fear top carnivores, at least not in modern times, and yet they do, and I, I wish desperately we could figure out a way to convince our neighbors these are not enemies, they're neighbors, and they're good neighbors, and we should welcome them. I think I'd say I'm sorry. I have learned that wolves are strong enough to survive and adapt to all the human changes and effects in their habitat, if we are willing to respect them and treat them as well as we would a brother. Thanks to writer-producer Natalia Oje-Nabaida for this edition of Deep Roots. Technical help from Rob Salmanovic and Sean Cowles. Deep Roots senior producer is Greg Osoba. Cortez Community Radio is grateful to the Community Radio Fund of Canada, the Victoria Foundation, other donors, and the Clahoos First Nation for their support. More information about the series can be found at cortezradio.ca.